You can go ahead and take a seat. My name is Rob Collis, and I'm on our pastoral team, and it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Um, I've been realizing lately just how much I appreciate drinking water. I, I really appreciate drinking coffee, too. Coffee's really great, especially when you've got a baby at home. Oh, my goodness. Coffee means something else to me now. But nothing quite satisfies me and satisfies my thirst like a glass of water. You know that feeling of just wanting some water, right? Maybe you've been working out at the gym and you've been working up a good sweat and just, you need a drink. Or, or maybe you've been going for a walk on, on the seawall and you've gone for longer than you expected because it's just so beautiful outside, although today it's very rainy. And then before you know it, you, you realize, oh, I'm actually kind of thirsty and I didn't bring a glass of water with me. Or maybe you just don't too much coffee like me and your tongue starts to get heavy. Your mouth gets that dry feeling and and you start to yearn for something to quench that thirst. And finally, you find a water fountain. Or you find a tap where you can fill up your, your glass of water. And the water washes in. And it swishes between your cheeks. And it dances across your tongue. And it runs down your throat. And there's that satisfying... Ah, that water quenches your thirst. Being thirsty is one of those things that's most basic and common to all of us, right? To all humans. We need water to live. It's one of those essential things we need. And we need to keep coming back again and again to just having some water. We get thirsty and we need to drink. We keep needing to drink water. And the Bible is full of stories who need a drink of water. But it also recognizes that just as our bodies need water to drink... Our souls experience thirst too. Psalm 42, it says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? This morning, it's my hope that we can come and meet with God together, and that our souls can be quenched by his presence. Today, we're starting a new sermon series called The Work of the People. Uh, it's an exploration of liturgy. The word liturgy actually just means the work of the people. When we gather here on Sundays, we, we sit and we stand and we kneel. We, we confess, we clap, and we sing. We recite creeds and we take communion together. And as we do all those things, we're engaging in, in liturgy. Liturgical worship offers us a space where we can slow down reflect and be shaped by the beauty and mystery of God's presence. A similar mystery, well, not quite the same mystery, but like my EQ changing right now, if you can hear that with me. I heard that, Jameson. Thank you. Uh, liturgy leads us and guides us to encounter God in worship. And over the coming weeks, we're going to take some time to, to trace how this liturgy that we use guides us to encounter the goodness of God and how it shapes our hearts to love and to praise him. So we're starting this new series about liturgy, but really, I think it's more appropriate to say this isn't a series about liturgy, it's a series about worship. This is a series about worship. It's about how our souls thirst for God, for the living God. And we're exploring how we can come and meet with God together. So as we begin this series, we'll, we'll talk about liturgy, but I don't want the point of this series to be about learning things about liturgy. I don't want that to be the point of this. I think we'll, we'll do that together along the way, but, but liturgy is supposed to lead and guide us in our worship. It's supposed to lead us to worship. 
And so today, I want to talk about worship. Because that's what this is all about. What liturgy is all about, but also what it means to be the church together. It means to come and worship. And so I want to look at a time when Jesus was thirsty and needed a drink. And as we dive into this encounter Jesus had with a woman beside a well, it's my hope that we will hear his invitation to us to come and quench the yearning of our hearts through worship. If you have a Bible, I invite you just to open it up to, to John chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can go to BibleGateway.com or open up your Bible app, and the illumination of your face will tell me that you're not texting or live tweeting, but you are deep in the word with me. Uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, we read, Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Often when I think about stories of Jesus in the Bible, I tend to think of other people coming to Jesus with a request. Right? Usually people come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, can you help me with this? But in this story, it, that, that script just kind of gets flipped on its head. Jesus is the one who's asking for something. He's asking for a drink. He had just been traveling with his disciples, and they'd been likely on the road for a few days now in the hot sun. And they arrived in this little town called Sychar. And Jesus decided to, to take a rest and grab a seat. He needed to, to rest himself. And, and the, the disciples are like, okay, well, we'll, we'll go get some food because we're all hungry as well. And so the disciples go off, and Jesus is just there sitting beside a well. He's beside a well, and, and Jesus is thirsty. But he didn't have anything to draw water with. So he sat down beside this well, and he waited for someone to come along. And that's a pretty sensible thing to do, right? Like, if you're thirsty, you don't have anything to drink or anything to drink with, you go to a place where you can find someone to help you get a drink. You, you go find a fountain so you can fill up your water bottle. Or you find a place with a tap so you can get a glass of water. But there wasn't such a thing as, as running plumbing and water in Sakar 2,000 years ago. So Jesus went and sat down beside the well, and he waited for someone to come along to help. But there was a problem, because he was there at the wrong time of the day. Have you ever stayed in a small town for a vacation, and, and you've been out all day having a great day exploring the sites and going for a hike, and you're thinking about dinner, you're like, you know what, we can, we can go out to dinner tonight. That'll be, that'll be a fun way to, to end our day. And you get back, and you get ready to go out to the local restaurants, and then you discover the hard way that everything closes at 6 p.m. I've experienced that a few too many times. And it's, it's not a good feeling when you discover that you're trying to do something at the wrong time of the day. People didn't typically draw water at noon, not from the wells in Sakaar, because that was the hottest time of the day. They would come when it was cooler, like in the morning or in the evening. 
And they would come in, the, in those times, morning and evening, to fill up the water jugs. They didn't go at 12 o'clock. That's not great timing for Jesus to be there. But at this wrong time of the day, someone does come. Someone comes, and we read, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Skipping ahead, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. A Samaritan woman came along at the wrong time of the day. I just want to probe those two little details. A Samaritan woman and the wrong time of the day, because I think they're really significant for this passage. So first, this, this woman was a Samaritan. In fact, in, in those last two verses I read, it said four times that she was a Samaritan. And the woman herself makes a point about this. She says, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. And then we're told it's in parentheses, for the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And now, there was some history between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's a bit of a complicated history, and they had some bad blood between them. Um, it's kind of like that, that neighbor you don't like, and you just kind of stay away from them. Like, they just tried to avoid each other, because it wasn't worth engaging with each other. This tension, it was so great that when the Jews went to travel around the, the, the region, they would just avoid going through Samaria. They'd take the long road, kind of like when you are trying to avoid going past your neighbor's house, so you go a block over just to skip them. And I don't have to, time to get into all the details of how this happened. It, it refers to something that happened in the Old Testament with the Babylonians coming in. But the result of this, this weird historical tension they had meant that there were some significant religious and cultural differences between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the people who still worshipped God in Samaria began to hold to some different beliefs about God. They had different beliefs about what he had said about himself, which books of the Bible were true, and where and how God was supposed to be worshipped. And so the Jews didn't associate with the Samaritans. But Jesus didn't try to avoid the difficult neighbor. We're told that he went through Samaria to get to Galilee. He didn't take the long way around. And now here he is, not only talking with a Samaritan, but asking for her help. The woman was a Samaritan. And there's another detail I want us to see. Second, this woman came to a well to draw water on her own at the hottest time of the day. She came on her own at the hottest time of the day. Why? Why did she come on her own? And why did she come at the hottest time of the day? I'm the sort of person who likes to go grocery shopping at the wrong times, when nobody else is there. It's amazing. It's so efficient. I just go through all the aisles. I don't have to do like the weird shuffle to get around all the, all the, the grocery carts. And just I'm in and I'm out. It's great. It's so much easier to go at those off times to go grocery shopping. And I think she came at the wrong time of the day on her own to have a bit of an easier time getting water. But it wasn't for the sake of efficiency. Not like how I go to the grocery store. It, it wasn't for the efficiency and for the ease. Because there wasn't anything efficient about drawing water at the hottest time of the day. She came at the hottest time of the day because she wanted to be alone. She wanted to be alone. She was trying to avoid everyone. 
She was trying not to be seen. Her life hadn't gone the way that she had hoped. Later in verse 16, when Jesus starts chatting with her more, he says to her, go, call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus responds, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. The circumstances of her life aren't clear, but we're told that she'd been married five times. We could speculate a lot about this detail. People really do speculate a lot about this, and, and there's a lot of assumptions people tend to draw about who this woman was and what she was like. I don't know that that's the most helpful thing for us to do, though. I think what we can see quite clearly and, and presume quite understandably is that this woman was really hurting. She was in pain. And her life had not gone the way that she had dreamt it would when she was young. She'd had five husbands, which means that there were five times that those marriages ended. And back then, she didn't have the right to divorce anyone. So either all of them had died, or all of them had divorced her, or some combination of the two. And none of that's easy, none of that's fun. Regardless of the details, she had experienced heartbreak over and over and over. And now she was living with another guy. She was living with another guy, and she didn't have any of the legal protection of marriage to support her. And not only that, she also knew that she didn't have any of the moral standing in her society or before God with marriage either. She could no longer bear to be seen by the others in her town. So she didn't want to associate with anyone. She didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to be standing there awkwardly at a well, drawing water, while the others whispered about her. But now here she is, associating with a Jew. Jesus asked for help from the kind of person good religious teachers weren't supposed to talk with. And he was talking with someone who probably didn't want to talk with him either. Right? And they'd both come to have a drink of water. And as they talked, this conversation they had, which began with asking for a drink of water, it, it turned into a different kind of conversation. This conversation turned into talking about quenching the desires of our souls. In verse 13, Jesus says, Everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There beside the well, Jesus saw her. He saw her and he knew her story. He knew about her life. He knew about the broken dreams, the heartbreak, sorrow, worry, and anxiety. He knew about the shame. He knew she came day after day to draw water from the well, coming at a time when she knew she would be alone. And he knew that her soul was yearning for something more. He saw her wounded and bleeding heart needed to soak in the presence of God so that her soul would be quenched with his love. So he told her about another kind of water. He told her about the fountain of living water, water that will become in her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He invites her to come and to participate in the presence of God. He invites her to come and worship. 
And as she hears Jesus' invitation, something begins to resonate in her heart. She knew that there was something in Jesus' offer that was calling to her. There was something so attractive and so inviting. But she also tries to protect herself from it too. In verse 15, there's kind of like this sarcastic edge and, and shield. As she responds, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. There's a yearning to receive this, this promise and this offer, but there's also this edge. After all she'd been through, after all she'd experienced and felt, this promise Jesus held before her seemed so inviting, but also maybe a little bit too good to be true. If you can satisfy my thirst, if you can quench my soul, then, then surely I won't need to drink again. I won't need to come back to this well. I won't have to keep coming back here to collect water. I won't need to come in the heat of the day to drink. She's kind of challenging Jesus here, saying, really? Oh, you, you can actually satisfy my soul. That's big. Well, prove it. I find it interesting that Jesus isn't offended by that response. He didn't get upset or defensive by her, her challenge to him. In fact, the way he responds is to prove to her that he sees her, to prove to her that he knows her. And he replies, and he says, I know your story. I know about those five husbands you have had, and I know about the man you're with right now. I know why you come here in the middle of the day, and I know why you come alone, why you try and stay away from everyone else. I see you. I see your pain. I see how you're living. I see all of it, and even still, I want to quench your thirst, and I want to satisfy your soul. And in the interaction, Jesus proves to her that he sees her. And he invites her to come and drink from the fountain of living water. He's inviting her to come and to worship. Now, perhaps it's not immediately clear that this is an invitation to worship. That, that the offer to come and drink from the fountain of living water is an invitation to worship. But the woman picked up on it. She understood. In fact, she's the one who makes this link in the passage. And in verse 19, she turns the conversation from talking about water to living water to then talking about worshiping God. And as I explained earlier, there's been a, a debate among the Samaritans about where is the correct place for us to go and worship God. And the Samaritans had built their own temple for God, and the Jews didn't like that, and so there was this debate between them. And so she brings that up, and she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, there's a number of people who suggest when she brings up this point that she's trying to change the topic as if to, to distract from the story of her life and what's just been revealed by Jesus. But she's just experienced the grace of God. She's just had an encounter with Jesus and Jesus has just proven that he sees her and loves her. She's just received an invitation to come and worship to drink from the fountain of living water and to experience the presence of God. She's responding and she's saying, where do I worship? How do I do this? Because I know that there's a debate that's been raging in my world for ages 
my tribe says this thing and your tribe says that thing. How do I come and worship? How do I come and truly worship and experience this presence of God? Because we can make worship about so many things, don't we? The Jews and the Samaritans argued about the right place to go to worship God. And today we still make worship about so many things. The music, the style, the tone, aesthetic, message, vibe, expressiveness, the relevance, the liturgy, the space, the people, the clothing, culture, formality, and all the other programs, and there's a list of other things we could keep naming. We make worship about so many things. And some of those things are actually really good things to talk about and to consider. But the debates and the arguments that we can get into over these topics, over these different pieces, can become so exhausting. And I think they become exhausting because often we shift the focus. We shift the focus off of God and put it onto ourselves instead. We we shift the conversation about worship from coming into the presence of God to satisfying an emotional high. The woman raises this debate in her day. And Jesus doesn't answer her question the way that she wanted In verse 21, he says, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Jesus just pushed the debate of their day aside, didn't he? He says a time is coming when they would worship the Father in a completely different place. And the debate and argument that they said mattered so much, it wouldn't matter anymore. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. He's saying, where you worship, it's not where you worship, that's not the point. It's how. How you worship. The forms that we go through for drinking from the fountain of living water, that's not the point. The point is the fact that you do come and drink from the fountain of living water that you come to worship in the spirit and in truth. He says that true worshipers will come and worship in the spirit. And now that doesn't mean that the proof of authentic worship is, is enthusiastic and emotional body movement, right? It doesn't mean that the proof that you've been worshiping properly is that you're leaving with, with tears running down your face. Because the Holy Spirit can be work, at work in, in those energetic Spaces, but he can also be just as much at work in the calm and the quiet and the structured and contemplative. Later in John's Gospel, in chapter 7, Jesus says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Worshiping in the Spirit means having that river of living water flowing from within us. It means drinking from and experiencing the fountain of living water for ourselves and having God at work in our hearts and lives 
coming into his presence and participating in his life. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says in verse 13, And you also were included in Christ Jesus when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When he believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. People who follow Jesus have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the proof of worshipping in the Spirit is being able to come into God's presence and encountering Him. It's having our souls quenched by Him. It means being sustained by Him and being carried by God. If we're worshipping in the Spirit, if we're in a community that is worshipping in the Spirit, then the long-term trajectory of our participation in that community will ultimately result in our souls going, ah, because we're being quenched with the presence of God. Jesus says true worshipers will worship in the Spirit. He also says that true worshipers will worship in truth. When the woman asked Jesus about where it was she was supposed to worship and about this debate between the Jews and the Samaritans, it's interesting what he did not say. Jesus never said that the Samaritans were right. Did he? He actually said that they had something off base about what they were believing. Their worship was about something that they did not know. And then he says that salvation is from the Jews. And he is insisting that there's something unique and important about how God has been at work amongst the Jewish people throughout history. And how God has revealed himself to them through the prophets. Jesus doesn't give us free reign just to let anything go. He says that the Samaritans were in the wrong for not receiving and trusting God's words in the rest of the scriptures. And that, that's the thing. It's like there's truths that we need to hold on to, to worship. There's a truth we are to receive and hold on to in our worship. And I think this, I think this can actually be a bit of a challenge for us today. I think we can feel this as a bit of a challenge. And we can rightly say, you know, but Jesus is after our hearts, right? Jesus is after our hearts, and what matters most is our sincerity in coming before him. And that's, that's true. We can begin to say that it's more about our heart being in the right place than having all the right ideas. And God is after our hearts. But God is also after the renewal and transformation of your mind. And he cares a lot about truth. To go back to Ephesians chapter 1 quickly, it says in verse 13, And you also were included in Christ Jesus when you heard the message of truth. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. To worship God in truth means the truth of the gospel, the truth of this good news. And the truth of this gospel is that we can't get our hearts in the right place on our own. We can't just be sincere on our own. We need God to come and be the one to get a hold of our hearts to make them right. The Bible scholar Mary Collot puts this really clearly. She says, the knowledge of the Father is necessary for true worship. If you're going to worship God, you need to know who he is. 
She says, and it, it, this is only possible through the revelation of Jesus, as he is the only one who can make the Father known. Faith is a response to the self-revelation of Jesus and is only possible through a personal encounter with Jesus and listening to his words. It's only possible through a personal encounter with Jesus and listening to his words. To worship God and to come and have our souls quenched, we need to have an encounter with Jesus. We need to listen to what he says. And that's what happened with the woman at the well. She encountered Jesus, there at the well. And she wasn't looking to find him. In fact, she was trying to hide. She was trying not to associate with anyone. But Jesus showed up. He showed up in this place at a time when no one was meant to be there. He sought her out. And he interrupted her. And she was the sort of person everyone else would have said shouldn't be able to believe, shouldn't be a part of a worshiping community. She'd even cut herself off from the rest of her town. Her life was messy. Her heart was broken. She was from the wrong culture to worship God properly, they said, and and she was trying to hide and didn't want to associate with anyone. But Jesus went and sought her. He went and sought her because that's the kind of God that he is. He's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. And when her soul was yearning for a drink, Jesus proved to her that he saw her. And he invited her to come and to drink from the fountain of the living water, to come and participate in the presence of God. The quote, Psalm 42, again, as the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? I don't know what you're bringing in here today. But I hope that you can hear Jesus calling to you from the well. Because whatever your story is, he knows it. He sees you. And he loves you. And he's offering to you a drink. A drink of living water from a well that will never run dry, a spring which will always bubble up and overflow. He's inviting you today to come and experience the presence of God, to come and participate in him. Worship is drinking from this fountain of living water. It's worshiping in the spirit and in truth. And Jesus invites you to come. He invites you to come, to drink And let that wash over all of you with living water so that your soul can go. So may Jesus quench your souls today. Let he quench all of us today with his living water. Let's pray.